Hey, this is Patrick Wong. Been fortunate to be on the Rolex 24 and Le Mans 24-hour winning GT teams in my career, and you're listening to the podium. This is the podium where we celebrate the best from the world of motorsport, and our next guest is an icon of sports car racing. He has finished on the top step of the podium at Le Mans, Nürburgring, Daytona, Petit Le Mans, Sebring, and the Bathurst 12-hour endurance events. In addition to all that, he's also competed in Australia in the V8 Supercars Championship. He currently works in a number of different roles for Porsche Motorsport. It's Patrick Long. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us on the podium. Hey, thanks for having me. Anytime uh, Australia calls, I know it's going to be a good time, so look forward to chatting. Well, yeah, great to have you on the podium, Patrick. Let's go on a little walk down Victory Lane, shall we? Like I said there in the intro, you've done pretty much everything there is in the world of sports car racing. Let's go back to the very beginning, though, and when you were a little kid, tell us, when did you first discover your passion for motorsport? How old were you and, and what, what was happening at the time? Uh, it was short track dirt racing Saturday night, even Thursday night here in Southern California. Ascot was sort of the mecca of, of short track dirt racing, uh, World of Outlaws, Speedway motorcycles, you name it. So from about four years old, I went with my dad, my, my uncle, his younger brother, and my grandfather. And uh, yeah, it was all about enjoying the races and uh, cheering them on. And what were you watching on the TV as a kid? Oh, uh, ESPN, whatever whatever racing was on, it was pretty much ESPN uh, growing up in the early 80s. Um, you know, GTP was a, a big memory for me and really where sports car racing registered uh, in my mind, watching, you know, the, the streets of San Antonio and uh, the Davy Jones of the world and the Jags battling the Hurley Haywoods and, and the Al Holberts in, in the Porsche. So super cool uh, period and era of sports car racing and definitely something that I love. But, uh, you know, NASCAR, uh, IndyCar, you name it. Uh, anything that was on TV, Swamp Buggy, swamp buggy Racing, uh, I, would, I would watch it all. Well, that's the thing you mentioned there, watching it as a kid on TV, going to the Speedway tracks with your family. What were the first steps that you took to get actively involved yourself? Uh, like many go-karts, um, my dad and, and his brother that I mentioned, they had a go-kart sort of at the beginning of, of the sport. Um, back back in the 60s here in Los Angeles when hot rodding and the culture of, of motorsport was was just that Saturday night racing and um, you know one of the early go-kart manufacturers at least in, in California was bug and um, they had a bug uh, I think it was a WAP with a max 10 engine on it for those vintage go-kart listeners anyways um, they messed around with go-karts and then 30 years later when I came along and uh, was just sort of finding my feet as a six-year-old I had sort of a homemade go-kart from a garage sale that I used to drive around um, in empty backyards of, of houses. My dad was a construction worker by trade, and so he'd be in installing a wood staircase, and I would be in the backyard burning a hole in the in the, the dirt before they ever built the backyards of those houses with, with my hand-me-down go-kart. Fantastic. Well, what, with, what were the next steps after go-karting? Because, you know, you've competed very highly in the go-karting ranks as well, haven't you? Yeah, my, my, uh, I did about 10 years of, of domestic karting. Um, along the way, I, I joined the international scene on the summers for the world championships and the JICA championships, sort of a 14, 15-year-old. Um, those are the first times that I sort of was introduced to the top level of karting. And 
also two Australian drivers and, and how quick they were in the karting scene. Uh, quickly, I knew the names James Courtney and Ryan Briscoe. And uh, a year later, I was invited by CRG and, and the factory to uh, move over to Italy and, and race in the Italian Championship and the European Championship and, and, and everything in between. And um, Ryan Briscoe actually turned out to be uh, my roommate. We, we lived at the factory. We worked 60 hours a week in the karting shop, you know, building and, and tuning go-karts and uh, really just sweeping the floors uh, and getting in the way. But we were definitely expected to be there on time in the mornings and it kept us out of trouble. And, oh man, so many good memories racing uh, just felt like every single weekend. And, and then and there, it was Formula A, air-cooled, rotary valve, um, factory tire programs and, and a super competitive class. So that would have been a uh, season of 1998 when I did um, what felt like 100 races around the world. Um, in karting um, just before I moved into single seater for my first opportunity. Fantastic. Well, let's go back a sec because you mentioned there Ryan Briscoe and James Courtney, two guys that we've had on the podium as well before. Do you have any fun stories to share from your time rooming with Ryan Briscoe and, and working alongside James Courtney? Uh, just tons of, tons of awesome stories, but um, nothing too specific. I don't know. I don't know if I want to bury them uh, on this, on this uh, interview, <laughs> but no, just, just being in seriousness. Uh, you know, we're, we're in Desenzano, uh, Lonato, kind of a, a, an amazing um, part of town in, in northern Italy between Milan and Verona. Um, you know, worked, worked hard during the week, but in the afternoons and the after, you know, in the weekends, we, we had our, our built up 50cc scooters and sort of just terrorizing the small villages with our modified pipes and things of that nature. But no, nah, it was just it was about going and having a gelato sitting by the water and, and just uh, gazing at all the girls. That was really uh, our MO if we weren't racing. Um, but other than that, uh, yeah, just James and Ryan has remained really close friends of mine. And I, I don't see James as much as I see Ryan for obvious reasons. Ryan's still being based in the States, but it's, it's awesome to still be in contact with them and, and uh, admire the hell out of them as people and as competitors. And with James, it went on a bit longer. Um, I left Italy, and, and we'll get to that later, but spent a few seasons in the U.K. and shared a house there with James and um, lots, of, lots of great times. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. And like you said there, you were only like 15 years old, you know, when you packed up your things and you went over there to Europe. What was it like for you in that moment? Were you very daunted by all those, you know, moving over so young and not really having any of your family and friends over there? Or what was it like? No, I, it was it was great. I mean, it, you didn't have to ask me twice if I wanted to leave school and leave my family behind and go uh, karting around the world with with one of the best teams in the business. Um, I think most kids would would give give a a right arm for that. But um, there there weren't many lonely times, mainly because um, good camaraderie with team members and and drivers, uh, and and really there wasn't a lot of time to sit around um, between studies full-time uh, work and then racing every single day uh, that, that there was a race, uh, the, the schedule was full. So season flew by and got to see a lot of the world, got to see a lot of Europe too. Um, we drove to most of the races. Sometimes we'd jump in the, one of the rigs and, and drive with the truck drivers. So no, it was a great opportunity experience. I, I wouldn't trade for anything. And the racing was, was awesome too. I mean, it was just so many heat races on a weekend and, and such intense, competition as i mentioned that it really helped me develop as a driver it, it it helped me transition as far as racecraft and speed over one lap and everything in between and yeah just just loved every minute of it yeah it sounds it sounds like an awesome time and 
at that point in time in your career, had you set yourself many goals long term, or was you just, or were you just seeing how you were going at the time? Oh, the goals were to to win win races at an international level. Um, America and their drivers hadn't had the best reputation of sort of showing up and and being used to different types of spec racing with harder tires and different engines. Um, so it, it took a while to um, really just find my feet and, and be fit enough to battle there at the front and, and know how to deal and manage with the tires. Um, but we, we found some good success early on. We won the uh, Italian Winter Cup, which was kind of one of the big opening races of, of the Italian season. And so um, fun to, to just get, get up on the top step of the podium for a few of those races. And the whole season was a bit up and down um, with, with what tire you were running at which, which race. It depended on, there was such a tire battle amongst the manufacturers that it depended between Vega, Dunlop, and Bridgestone, who was bringing the secret soft tires. And of course, everything that mattered was just like in all levels of motorsport, the weather, uh, the track abrasiveness, et cetera. So um, rough and tumble, but learned, learned a ton and, and only wish I would have stayed longer than the European karting ranks, but um, there was an opportunity to jump up and, and race in some, some small displacement single seaters. And I knew that the opportunities might not be there forever. And I didn't have the family or, or private backing to be too selective. So um, jumped out of there after only uh, what felt like a couple of seasons, but it was really one long year of racing internationally and karting. You know, we mentioned, you know, growing up watching motorsport as a kid as well. Who were your favorite drivers? Who did you look up to? Who were your mentors? Uh, as a kid, I, I kind of liked the diverse and rebellious drivers. Anybody um, in the American scene that could just jump in and, and go fast in, in all different dis- disciplines of cars, you know, Robbie Gordon, Tony Stewart, these guys that, you know, they had IndyCar accolades, they had um, short track accolades, off-road, NASCAR, they, they sort of did it all. And, you know, they weren't the cleanest uh, competitor or, or personality, uh, but they were interesting. And there's a a teenage kid, you know, you kind of like that rebellious outlaw um, of the personality of those guys. So um, that was mainly on the domestic scene. Um, when I watched Formula One, you know, early 90s, of course, Senna was the, the guy that I really admired and looked up to. And then as Schumacher came on the scene and, and really um, became the guy, it was interesting to see those two. And naturally, they, they were often talked about how close and, and how active they stayed with their roots in karting. So it was really relatable um, to me as a, a teenager to see that these guys were in Formula One and, and dominating in their, their eras and, and still jumped back in karts. Well, yeah, and, and like you've said there, you know, you're doing world championship karting events and we've talked about some, you know, some iconic F1 drivers there. You got to race up against some future world champions as well in your early days there. Talk about some of the guys that you were coming up against. Yeah, I, I mean, at the karting level, uh, Alonzo was the same age as, as Ryan and I in, in that sort of year of, of 15 years old, I remember, uh, or 14 years old, my first five continents cup and lining up against uh, Fernando. And he was always a, a really sort of thinker, um, super smooth in a kart and, and really great to race against. Um, later on in, in Formula Renault, uh, shared a season uh, with, with Lewis Hamilton and uh, I actually got to know him a bit earlier. Um, he was racing for Dino Chiesa, who was kind of the mentor and tuner of, of Bristol and myself. And as he came along, him and Nico uh, joined Dino and they formed MBM, which was a Mercedes-Benz McLaren um, sort of junior team in karting. And so got to know Lewis and his family and, and Nico at the same time. And 
um, racing against him, uh, it was it was evident and and really easy to see that he had such a natural ability to find speed with very little experience. I remember I had been a few years in cars when he came over to the UK and, and joined us in in Formula Renault. Um, Will Davison was in there that year. Jamie Green, uh, a lot of quick quick guys that ended up making a pro career in in racing. And uh, you know, Lewis was probably seventeen or so and just a really quick rookie right off the bat. But yeah, lots of lots of fast guys over the years, you know, getting to know Jensen and Anthony Davidson and um, some of the Brits that, that was amazing. They were a bit older than me. So um, not a lot of crossover in the car racing, but uh, certainly in the carts, it was great to be around all those guys. Well, yeah. End of 1998 there, you finished up with the karting and then, yeah, like you said, 1999, the Formula Renault competition there where you had people like Lewis Hamilton to compete up against. That was when you first moved into the formula categories uh, you went on and did Formula Ford after that. Talk about competing in the Formula Ford championships. Uh, Formula Ford in, in the UK was, was unbelievable. Um, when I was in France racing in La Filière, um, in sort of uh, the Renault um, 1600 cars, um, there was a chance to continue on in, in French national championships, tested a Formula 3 car, and it was amazing um, to be in that ELF program, but it was clear, it was it was evident that everybody was over in the UK chasing British Formula 3, as it seemed like that was the natural pathway to Formula 1 in those times. Um, getting into Formula Ford was so competitive, um, just tons of uh, competition and, and really close, hard battles in, in racing. And uh, yeah, I did two seasons there and, and loved every bit of it. Certainly learned how to race in the wet. Um, that was that was uh, coming from Southern California. That was a bit eye-opening. Just how many days of testing and racing were were in the wet. Sometimes just on slicks. Other times on on rain tires. But yeah, in that era of Formula Ford, it was a Z-Tech, so it was an 1800 fuel-injected engine versus the co- more traditional 1600 um, carbureted style engine. But uh, loved loved it. Loved the racetracks in the UK. Everything seemed to be you know two hours driving distance. But um, great memories. Yeah. Well, you know. You're on that journey up through the formula categories. We've had a few of the up-and-coming drivers of today, uh, like Oscar Piastri, Jack Doohan, and Alex Peroni join us and talk about just how much money is involved working their way up through the ranks. What was it like back when you were racing, you know, in those junior categories? It certainly changed. It seems like the the guys you mentioned are, are even in a deeper pool of, of funding needed. Um, for us, it seems... Uh, unobtainium to have to raise half a million dollars US to go into Formula 3 and now I'm sure that's probably not even half of it Um, but back then I mean again my dad's a carpenter uh, my mom's a stay-at-home mom so I didn't really have um, big backers or funding and sort of just had to look for the scholarships and uh, different rides that were available there was some some help from friends and family you know back home and I remember coming back in the winter and thinking about different ways to uh, get people to kick a few bucks my way just to at least pay for rent and cell phones. But that's sort of the story of of young racing drivers. You just had to kind of fight every way you could to, to get to the top. But, uh, yeah, as I look at today's day and age, it's probably uh, the same amount of money to do a full year of karting as it was for us to run Formula Ford or, or Formula Renault. So uh, never easy, but I think it is uh, kind of a, a filtration system of, of those who are willing to fight tooth and nail to – um, figure out how to fund the racing, how to find the rides, to find where the scholarships are at. And I think that it, it is um, one of the toughest parts, if not the toughest part of the sport, but it also is a marketing degree. It's a business degree. And you learn how to sell, you learn how to uh, create relationships and 
find little holes of business to business partnerships or working with OEM manufacturers and, and trying to bring suppliers to them and squeeze a commission off the back end. So the creativity of, of looking for money, although it's, it's, it's the most challenging part of the sport as a youngster, when you just really want to drive and show, show your talent off. Um, I think it bodes well for the future, um, no matter what you do in your life. You know, after a few years in Formula Ford, in 2002, you went and did the Formula Renault UK Championship. Quite a good season there. You had a win and a few podiums. What was going through your mind, though, at towards that very end of 2002 in terms of the career progression and where you wanted to be? Yeah, it was eyes wide open. Um, Flicks and Wings was, was definitely amazing um, to get, for the first time, a, a, a real amount of downforce in those Paddock chassis, although it wasn't anything like a, a 3000 car or GC2 car, um, it did give, give a, a different driving style and it was a lot closer to kind of the karting uh, mindset. Uh, but no, it was, it was apparent that um, I was going to need to, to figure out a, a second plan um, from a funding standpoint and, um, you know, won some races, got some podiums, but that wasn't going to um, really get anybody from corporate America to step up and write a big check. Uh, not at least to get to Formula 3 and, and eventually to Formula 3000. So at that point, um, Red Bull had come forward and was looking for a, an American. Um, the GP had been in Indianapolis for a few years, and it didn't seem like there were any real prospects on the American side of things that were ready to go into Formula 1. So um, of all companies, uh, an Austrian Red uh, energy drink company stepped up, and everybody knew who Red Bull was then in 2002. And um, yeah, they're, they're more established now, but, um, even back then it was clear that they had the, the muscle to provide drivers opportunity. So there was a big American gong show, long story short, there were 16 drivers that they combed all of racing. Um, anybody from with a U.S. passport all around the world from short track dirt racing up to, you know, Paul Edwards, who was one of the most experienced Americans in Europe racing sort of at a formula three level. And, uh, they put us all together and, and, and put us through a gauntlet of different marketing activities. And along the way of that Formula One driver selection, we were introduced to a lot of um, GT car manufacturers. And, and Porsche was one of them. We were at the Grand Prix at Indianapolis. And um, sort of the, the, the grandfather of the program uh, from the U.S. side was Danny Sullivan, Indy 500 winner. And he brought me over to meet the, the Porsche Super Cup guys that were there racing alongside the Formula One Grand Prix at Indianapolis. And made a contact, you know, put a, put a business card in the jacket pocket of, of the decision makers and, and walked away uh, hoping that one day I might get a phone call to even just do a guest drive in, in the Porsche Super Cup. And then they, re, uh, they showed up again uh, when we were uh, testing uh, later, a couple of months later, at Paul Ricard in the, in the same program for Red Bull and um, saw those same guys from Germany. Um, and they were sort of keeping an eye on a few of us drivers. And so didn't make the Red Bull uh, cut, went from 16 down to six, uh, made that first cut, and then they took four of the six, and, and I wasn't one of those four, and um, sort of had my head in my hands and thought, well, that's kind of the end of, of the career road for me, and I'll go back and work in the in the wood shop with my old man and, and surf on the weekends. Uh, and then the phone rang, and, and Sullivan told me that the Porsche guys wanted to meet me. So that was kind of the, the break that everybody talks about in, in professional sports, that one opportunity um, that the stars align. And so for me, it was Porsche and I was on my way to Stuttgart, uh, to get picked up and, and test one of their 911 cup cars. And I had a little bit of experience in GT racing prior to that phone call. Um, not so much racing, but just testing the, the V8 GTR, um, from BMW, uh, different car, front engine, you know, 
fuel and gearbox, and then I jump in this synchro box uh, rear engine 911 in, in Leipzig and just loved the car. It had a ton of front grip, turned in really well, um, could slide it around a bit, but it was it was a momentum car. It rewarded being smooth, and so yeah, that was kind of the uh, the intersection of of turning my path towards GT racing. Well, yeah, there you go, and one of the very few Americans to be signed on by the Porsche Motor Company as well. So that must have been quite a thrill. And yeah, what was what was going through your mind then? You know, having to turn your attention from open wheelers into into GTs. I mean, it was it was quickly um, a, a path that that seemed like obvious. Their way of going racing. Um, Vysock, where their R&D for the car company is for all the street cars, but also where all their motorsport activities were. When I first went to Vysock and, and saw all of the motorsport and saw the culture there, uh, I knew it was something really cool. Um, I was aware um, that they were really vested into young drivers and investing into young drivers for the future. Um, I'd seen that with Marino Franchitti over in the UK. He had done a deal with Porsche GB and then with Alex Davidson. Uh, Alex was a couple of years ahead of me, but I had known him through his brother, Will. And uh, I could see that Alex was already racing um, over in Germany in the Career Cup and the Super Cup and was going well. And spoke to him a bit um, and Mark Lieb, uh, his buddy. And they just looked at me and said, if you're in the UPS junior team, uh, you, you've got one of the best cars on the grid and, and you're already on the radar of the factory. So, you know, don't think twice about this opportunity. It's, it's the best thing you'll ever do. Well, yeah, and 2003, very busy year for you as well. Yeah, like you said, you became the Porsche factory driver, the only American. You competed in the Porsche Super Cup. Uh, yeah, had a few podium finishes there. You also did the Porsche Carrera Cup over there in Britain and in uh, Germany as well. Talk about that experience in 2003. Yeah, the main uh, focus was Carrera Cup Germany, um, and that was supporting DTM and DTM at that time, to early 2000s, was just at the pinnacle of, of their sport. And it was super uh, amazing just to be involved in that type of weekend. The amount of crowd uh, that was in the stands, um, you know, kind of the star drivers and the, and the manufacturers all around you. Um, and it was just sheer competition. Um, you know, I think the first round at Hockenheim, I was sort of sixth or eighth place and, and thinking to myself, how am I going to find another quarter of a second in one of these cars? It felt like I was on the the nasty edge of, of the tire, the brakes of everything. But um, I just needed more time. Um, by the third or fourth round, I was able to win at North Ring against, uh, you know, some guys that I, I raced for a long time against, Roman Dumont, Frank Stippler, uh, Wolf Hensler, uh, a bunch of Germans that that were super, super quick, and um, even some Frenchmen. So uh, fun championship. Super Cup was amazing. We only did five rounds of the Super Cup. We sort of poked in um, for the, the weekends that, uh, UPS had a good established market and we were kind of guest blocked, but, you know, finish on the podium at Monaco as a, a, a Southern California kid and to, you know, walk up there and, and take your hardware from the royalty on a Formula One weekend, uh, sort of 60 minutes before the Formula One race goes live on a Sunday is pretty sweet. Uh, Monza was a great memory as well, racing uh, on the Formula One weekend then and just, you know, the, the pinnacle of, of, of time for me um, as a youngster. Um, toward the end of that season, uh, after putting some decent results for a rookie, uh, my teammate in the championship in, in the, in the cards for the Porsche junior team was Mike Rockenfeller. And uh, a lot of listeners have heard of Mike, uh, just a huge personality and, and driver, uh, such a solid character and, uh, ultra fast in everything he's ever raced in. And 
he was a couple of years younger than me, but he was more experienced in the cars. And so we were on pretty level terms and, and starting to rub fenders and, and come back with each other's paint on our doors. So it was, it was interesting. We pushed each other, but also I think the bosses could, could see that this was going to get worse before it got better. So um, they sent us both over for the Petit Le Mans, um, the final race of the IMSA championship that year. Um, and let us both jump into separate teams in a GT car as a third driver for the long race. And, um, yeah, it went well and, um, you know, made some contacts back in uh, being home after six seasons of racing in Europe was, was pretty different. So, um, made some good contacts there and, and the bosses from Porsche Motorsport North America seemed keen to run me the year after. So, um, yeah, that's when I kind of transitioned from my time in Europe, uh, to full fledged racing in the U S full time. So, sort of packed my bags, left Europe and, and moved home to Southern California for 2004 and, and forward from there. Well, yeah, you mentioned there you joined TRG, uh, a team that Australians would know James Davison would go on to drive for back when they had the Aston Martins in the IMSA Championship, the early days of the uh, IMSA WeatherTech Championship there. Talk about, yeah, that move back to America. Like, what did it do for you after all these years being in Europe? And you know, now obviously you were competing in the American Le Mans series and you also did some Grand Am races, competing in these endurance races. What was it like doing those compared to the sprint events? Uh, there was just a, a big relief personally, um, just to have, have left home and come back uh, with a contract in my pocket to actually get paid to race cars for a living. That had never happened for me. And um, whether it was one season or, or a couple decades, I just felt like um, finally all of that begging and cheating and stealing and crashing uh, to try and uh, keep the dream alive of one time just making one start as a professional driver. Um, that was an amazing time. I remember coming home and hanging out with my friends during during the winter um, before the, the, the first season and uh, just partying my ass off because I, I couldn't believe it that, um, you know, I was home and uh, was going to go racing. So, yeah, it was a it was a bit of a a, a big run of, of, of celebration, and and then it was time to get serious and and really up the training for the endurance races, get that partying out of the system, and then uh, get on the bike and and get ready for some long hard races. But that first year um, in endurance racing was was tough. Um, you know, we were up against the Alex Job factory cars, uh, who had a bunch of Porsche factory drivers in them, and then uh, the Rizzi Competizione Ferrari. There was a big battle and rivalry between those guys uh we had the panos factory cars in there as well so um, we were one of the smaller teams but we had a, a big financial partner uh that gave us the budget to go testing and so got a lot of laps that year and and learned a lot didn't really put up any amazing results um domestically but did skip over to lamar on kind of a whim last minute phone call from um the, the lead entry from porsche and sort of got to join sasha mawson and and Jörg Bergmeister in the Peterson White Lightning um, team for, for 24 hours of them all that year. And man, I was the rookie in the team, sort of the liability, but uh, kept it kept it on the uh, black stuff for most of the race. And uh, we, we ended up being victorious in GT that year. So that was definitely the highlight of the season. Um, you know, winning GT at Le Mans, I never thought uh, for a second that I'd get to race that race. And then to, to be there and walk out on the podium was, was pretty epic. But um, had to get my head back into it. I think we were racing the week after at mid Ohio. So we were back to small town, middle of America, great track, but in the middle of nowhere. So it was sort of like from the big stage of Le Mans back into, um, mainstream, uh, North American racing. And, uh, yeah, fought hard, um, through the, the end of that championship, uh, in 2004 
And then uh, things started to kind of align for, for 2005. Uh, joined Jörg Bergmeister in the Peterson White Lightning uh, team, which I had been with at Le Mans. And uh, we had a, an amazing year and started putting some wins and, and, and victories up on the board. And, and things started to kind of come together for me as a, as a driver. Oh, it sure did. Yeah, that 2005 season, you know, first in the GT2 standings, five wins. You won at Sebring, Road America, Mosport, uh, Laguna Seca. You had nine podiums in the 10 races. Very consistent run there from you and the team. But yeah, you mentioned Le Mans in 2004. You won on debut. What were the emotions standing on that top step of the podium at Le Mans? Oh, I was tired. <laughs> I remember... Uh, thinking, you know, sun coming up the second day and thinking, man, we got six more hours to go in this deal. And, uh, I was ready to kind of curl up and just, uh, pass out, but, um, relief, um, a little bit of shock. Uh, there wasn't a huge wave of emotion. I was just so glad, uh, that it was over and, and, and that we, we battled hard against the Freisinger car all night long. And, uh, you know, my teammates looked pretty fresh, but I, I was a wreck. Um, just, just awesome to have teammates that believed in you. Um, I think there were times that week where, you know, I was a couple seconds off and not really understanding how, how to find that last bit of pace at Le Mans. The speeds there are just so high and you have to have a lot of circuit knowledge with the length of the lap and not just similar to Bathurst or Nürburgring. You, you really need the, the lap there, especially in that day and era. Um, we didn't have a lot of tire. There weren't really any driver aids. And so it was a bit more old school than it is now. A uh, lot, lot less margin for error. No, no real paved runoffs or, or any of the things you see at Le Mans on TV today. So uh, pretty daunting, but um, they got me up to speed. I think my, my stints on average were, were right there with any of the vets and uh, kind of pulled my own way. But I do remember that the final stint was supposed to be mine. And we had the lead by, you know, I would say 10, 15 seconds. It surely wasn't um, a half a lap. And so it was going to be a sprint to the end. And I remember looking at Sasha, who was, you know, 10 years older than me. And I just said, dude, you got to take this. I can't, my nerves can't handle it. So there was always kind of an innocence to my uh, early days where I knew that I had more to learn. And I never counted myself as, you know, this, this phenom that, that had the speed or the, the knowledge to, to just be the best thing anybody had ever seen. I knew I had to earn the respect of, of the factory. So, no, it was it was good times and uh, yeah, lots of emotion. Uh, probably a week after when I when I got some rest. Well, yeah, and like we said, there plenty of success that came after that in '05 and then '06. You did a lot more races in the Grand Am Rolex Series. You joined Alex Job Racing there, uh, two wins, Homestead and I think VIR and seven podiums. In addition to that, you're also doing the American Le Mans Series because back then there were two different GT series racing over in America. Another successful year as well in that championship. Third in the GT2 standings, three wins, six podiums. However, one of the highlights must have been getting to drive with Penske Racing for the first time at Sebring. Talk us through your 2006 seasons. Yeah, that was um, definitely a big a big year of transition. Um, racing in the Grand Am in, in that era was a lot of fun because you had 25 you know, or so prototypes and they were not high downforce like a, an LMP car, but still a lot more downforce than a GT car and less weight, less restriction on the engine. And uh, they were pretty cost controlled. So you had a lot of teams and, and good drivers. Ganassi was in there, Adrian Fernandez, uh, a lot of like IndyCar level teams were running uh, at the beginning of that era of Daytona prototypes. So 
a lot of fun, a lot of competition. I was back with Mike Rockefeller, my old teammate from the junior years. And I think we, we had some upsets there. We, we definitely battled hard and, and won a couple of races. But um, that, that other opportunity to drive uh, with Penske and the new RS Fighter program, um, the RS Fighter, now that was some serious downforce and a really, obviously, a, a high-level team. Um, pretty surreal to, to take the start of Sebring, uh, driving for, for Roger Penske and Tim Sindrick. Um, lots of past and, and a great heritage story of, of Penske and Porsche dating all the way back to, you know, Roger uh, racing himself in a 550 Spider 718 as well. And, and then looking ahead to the, the days of the 917, um, especially the 30, but also the 91710 in, in the, the, the 70s with Mark Donahue. And so for Porsche and Penske to be back together, you know, almost 35 years later, 40 years, pushing 40 years, it was, it was amazing. And, you know, there's no bigger team or, or name in, in American motorsports, but I know the Aussies know the Penske, the Penske name well too from, from their recent years uh, with Scott and V8. And uh, just lots of pressure, uh, but also um, the feeling uh, as a driver for Penske of knowing you had everything you ever could hope for or wish for um, as a driver, whether it was your race gear or your race car or your mechanics, your PR staff, everything was just so over the top perfect. And it really was an amazing opportunity, but it also put the pressure on you. You knew uh, it was perform or, or find a new seat with a different team. So I uh, got my feet wet that first year um, at Sebring. Uh, Mike Rockenfeller did, did the petite, so we both got one race in the long-distance races. And, uh, yeah, just really great times um, and, and helped push me as a driver. I knew that at that point, um, what it felt like to go through a, a corner at sort of a, a an indie car level uh, of speed. I remember being uh, testing at Mid Ohio, and our and our lap times were right on par with the indie cars. And so, physically, that was a step up from the Daytona, Daytona prototypes or um, the GT cars. And because I didn't have a, a big single seater uh, background um, at that point, I decided to get pretty serious on the fitness level and picked up left California, moved to Florida full time. Uh, so that I could be uh, next to Jan Halen, who was another karting guy that that I knew really well from Belgium. And so Jan and I were just every day on the on the road bikes um, and and training hard to be able to sustain those long stints in the in the LMP2 car and take my driving to a a different level from the fitness side. It really did transform me in in how I could push at the end of the races or the end of the stints. And so it was a full time year in '07 um, back in the Daytona prototypes. And just trying to prepare myself uh, with the aim of getting into that Penske team for, for the full season of 2008. Well, you closed out the 2007 season very strong for Penske Racing. You won the Petit Le Mans. You know, you're driving a Porsche, you're driving for Penske. You mentioned all the pressure that comes with all that. How else do you deal with the pressure? I think a lot of it is, is down to just understanding how, how your, your mind works, um, the mentality of, of sports psychology. And you see that with sportsmen um, across the board, not just in motorsport, especially independent sports uh, such as golf. I think so much of it is mental and, and just being able to stay outside of your own head space and not having any of that, that doubt slip in. Um, so really just extracting um, the very best from yourself and, and being able to just switch it on like a, a light and turn it off and, and decompress. And then when it isn't going that well, 
kind of how to pull your mind out of the, the barrel and, and get yourself moving forward. So I uh, spent a lot of time on the, the mental side um, and, and the physical side. And, you know, at, at that point, at the end of 2007, there was an interesting thing happening at, happening at Penske. Um, Sam Hornish, who was in the IndyCar full-time, was moving uh, into the stock car, into the NASCAR seat with Penske. And that meant that, that Ryan uh, Bristow was the next guy um, you know, to be called up. And so he moved in uh, to the IndyCar program, and that opened up a seat in the, the Spider. So I, I saw um, 2007 at the Petit. Again, I was a third driver. That was kind of the, the final uh, box I had to check to get that full season seat. And, um, yeah, just, just uh, that mental, physical step forward and, and living out on the East Coast, kind of removing myself from – all the uh, distractions of, of good living in Los Angeles and, and uh, being out on, on the beach. Uh, instead, we were in Florida and uh, pushing pretty hard. And uh, so, yeah, it all worked out to plan. Yeah, well, I have to ask you, you mentioned there Jan Halen training alongside him. And, you know, even before you mentioned your relationship with Ryan Briscoe over the years. Talk about the relationship and the culture dynamic with American motorsport compared to in Europe? Because, you know, like you see people like Fernando Alonso in more recent years now comment on how laid back the American culture is compared to how it was when he was racing over in Europe where, you know, each driver would keep to themselves, whereas in America, you know, it's a lot more laid back and open. Yeah, I was actually just listening to a Dinner with Racers podcast um, that uh, Philippe Nasser was, saying uh talking about and he was talking about his days in in formula one with sauber and how he had he had come from a a totally different culture uh you know racing in in brazil and i think that the u.s south america australia it is much more of a friendly atmosphere in the pit i found a lot of commonality uh racing down south and also uh down under to the u.s side where europe it really is um, sort of dog eat dog. It, you stick to your own team. Uh, you probably don't get along with your teammate because that's the first guy you want to destroy. Um, so it, it was a different mentality. And I, I had to transition um, coming over to the U.S. after six racing seasons in Europe because I really did have my head down as I walked through the paddock. And if if somebody, a competitor, was on the outside of me as we went through the corner, you know, stuff him, just push him off. Um, send them out into the dirt because that's really how uh, racing was in Europe, uh, at least in the time I was there. So, yeah, certainly a, a culture transition, but really found a home uh, racing in the States. I, I enjoyed, um, you know, being able to laugh and joke and, and go out for a beer after the race with some of your toughest competitors. And, you know, somebody like Jan Magnussen is, is, a, is a good example of somebody uh, who's a European but has made most of his career in the U.S. And, you know, he was gnarly on track. He was the guy you hated on track, but then you got off the track and he was such a gentle, smiley, you know, laid back guy and you couldn't help but like him. And I, that's kind of the way I wanted to model uh, my career was just to be sort of feared on track, but uh, the first guy to, you, you kind of wanted to approach off the track. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, before we finish on 2007, you also, we didn't get to mention it. You also won Le Mans for the second time in 2007. Tell me, was it easier or harder winning it the second time? Uh, everything um, about winning is, is always difficult. Uh, it was a it was a unique race. I remember finishing the race uh, for the team in the wet and uh, a pretty changing condition, uh, torrential uh, type of condition. Uh, but the most of the difference was just knowing my surroundings, having had a few more of those 24 hours under my belt. I felt much fresher and crisper in the car. 
I had a rookie teammate, Richard Leitz, who's a really close friend of mine. And it was his first time at Lamar. I had him and I had a pro-am driver, uh, Raymond Narak, who was a really serious and, and great driver. But he was a guy that had a full-time job and, and did this for, for kind of a journeyman, uh, passionate project. And with all of that, um, leading the team, um, that was a, a great uh, reward. It felt different to be kind of the, the most accomplished or, or at least experienced driver um, in the team. Uh, the team really relied on, on me to do the setup, uh, the qualifying, you know, take the start of the race, finish the race. So there was a lot more responsibility. And therefore, the second race was that much sweeter from, from a leadership perspective. Um, but never, never any easier, just sort of was a li- little bit more prepared. Well, yeah, let's talk about 08. You mentioned there all the changes there at Penske, which meant that you had a full-time seat uh, with the team in the LMP program. You finished fifth in the standing, six podium finishes over the course of that season. Tell us, what is Roger Penske like away from the racetrack? Oh, away from the track, he was great. I mean, I still run into him, uh, and, and it's, it's like no time has gone by, even though it's been more than a decade since that program. Um, RP is the kind of guy that remembers everybody's name. Uh, he doesn't have a long conversation with you, but it's a personal conversation. Uh, he's such a competitor, both in business and in racing, uh, which is, is no surprise to anybody. Uh, just a, a great dude, but all in all, I would summarize him as a racer. Uh, he wants to win. Uh, and he's focused on uh, that next race or, or that next championship. And it's pretty exciting um, as a sidebar comment to just mention that, you know, they're going to come back in 2023 and, and do this again, both in WEC um, overseas and domestically uh, in IMSA with, with two entries in, in both championships, I believe. Uh, cool to see uh, another generation of, of drivers and, and Roger uh, going racing with Porsche. Um, certainly 2008 was, uh, just a, an amazing opportunity for me. Uh, there was a big battle between Porsche and Acura, a uh, bunch of factory drivers and factory dollars behind uh, a few teams, uh, Dyson and, and Penske with the Porsches. And then you had, uh, testing my testing my memory now, I think it was Fernandez, uh, Highcroft. There were, there, I think there were like three Acura factory teams. And so, yeah, at any one point you had, you know, 10 cars that could win the race and, bunch of IndyCar and Formula One names that were, were playing in the in the, the scene of LMP2 in that era. And then we were battling hard against the Audi factory program as well. I, I think it was an R10 or an R12 um, in those times, a, a diesel. And so uh, those cars were really big, bigger wheelbase, lots of horsepower. And so they made their speed in different ways. So certain racetracks, uh, we were much quicker, even though we were technically a category down. Uh, so it was fun to, to battle those guys. Uh, hammer and tong and, and such a, a, a sweet period of, of LMP racing and, and racing overall. And I mean, all of those days uh, for me felt like borrowed time. I, I really didn't consider myself a, a single seater driver or, or a prototype driver. And so, you know, when you're on the grid and, and racing hard with David Brabham or uh, Christian Fittipaldi, uh, Adrian Fernandez, these are guys that I was watching on TV, you know, as a go-kart kid. Um, and now all of a sudden I'm racing them in these factory prototypes that are putting IndyCar lap times up. It was uh, unreal, especially doing it for a team like Penske. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned there are a few of those iconic names from Formula One and, and IndyCar. 
some of these guys you grew up watching. What was it like meeting these guys on track for the first time? Oh, they're all different as drivers are. Um, Brabs was amazing to race against. Uh, he didn't have a lot to say off the track. He kept to his own and uh, someone that we all looked up to because, uh, you know, when it was time to, to speak at a driver's meeting and, and there was something to be said, David would say it. But for most of the time, he just let his driving do the talking and, uh, you know, look up to guys like that. Uh, he was he was always fair on track, but always quick. Um, so, so that was a lot of fun. And um, I remember some hard battles with Frank Montani. Um, you know, Frank had had good experience in single seaters and in prototypes all over the world and super fast uh wasn't wasn't very chatty off the track but um pushed really hard on track and uh battled with him enjoyed that um there's so many of them i, I feel like i'm being a an american name dropper with all these uh racing names i'm mentioning but uh tony Canon was a, another guy that came in and would race with uh andretti green they had a an entry in in that season and uh he he was just one of those types of guys that as soon as the car came off the jack, you know, he was, he was on quality pace and just sort of held it right there the whole, the whole stint. So yeah, fun racing. Um, the way I could describe it was we had tons of downforce, uh, very stiffly sprung car and not a lot of horsepower. So you had to kind of keep your momentum up and fighting through GT cars, uh, and splitting them three wide on some of these tighter, more treacherous tracks that don't have a lot of runoff in the U S it was just a, a great memory and a great time in racing for me. Well, yeah, at that point in time, you've, you know, really achieved a lot of success. You know, you'd won Le Mans twice. Uh, you'd won the Petite Le Mans a few times. And then in 09, the only race that you did in the Grand Am Rolex series with TRG, you won. And it was the Rolex 24. Talk about winning the Rolex at Daytona. Oh, to finally win that, that watch. Oh, unbelievable. Um, you know, there's, there's the materialistic side of me uh, as a driver, uh, you know, trophies mean something uh, for all drivers, but uh, when you can wear a Rolex on your wrist, uh, especially at Daytona, um, that's one race that everybody wants. And, and a lot of it is the track and a lot of it is the race, but a lot of it is that watch. And uh, I remember saying to myself after, you know, five or six times attempting to win that race and coming so close both overall and in GT, that I, I told myself I'm never buying any Rolex product for the rest of my life um, until I win that, that damn watch. <laughs> so uh, very relieved, very sweet to um, go up on the podium and, and to actually see that box be handed across to you uh, and to put that watch on with your, your four teammates and, and uh, great, great times, great memories. And uh, yeah, just a, an amazing race itself. Uh, being on the high banks and running, you know, four or five wide <laughs> at times is just insane. It's, winter in Florida. So often you get uh, a really long night, uh, uh, you know, almost 12 hours of dark. Luckily there's pretty decent lights um, at the track, but it still feels to your body clock, like a long night of racing. Um, and, and often cold temps uh, and hot temps during the day and cold temps at night. So it's not easy for setup. It's not easy for, for tire strategy. And uh, yeah, with that, it, it, it's sweet every single time uh, you, you get on the podium at Daytona. Well, a little earlier on in 2021, we spoke to Scott Pruitt, and Scott Pruitt, of course, has the record for the most Rolex victories. He said that he's given some of his Rolex watches to his kids. Tell us, what have you done with your Rolex watch? Uh, I've, I've kept it. Um, I, I've been fortunate to have some great watch partners over the years, um, both in the Porsche factory and also um, with Luftgekult, which is a uh, 
my, my little company and experiential brand. So um, currently got a Chopar on the wrist, but every once in a while I, uh, I pull it out and, uh, you know, give it some exercise, make sure the, the fluid getting some workout. And um, yeah, it's, it's a big part of, of my memories and, and possessions and keep it locked up otherwise. So um, pretty, pretty fun one to have. That's fantastic. Well, a majority of that year you spent in the American Le Mans series. You moved over to Flying Lizard. You won the GT2 championship there. Six wins. You had five wins in a row as well during that year. You won at Long Beach, Lime Rock, Laguna Seca. What are your memories from 09? Uh, coming back into GT racing full-time after uh, the prototype championship, really a lot of transition in the class. Um, big competition from BMW and Ray Hall, um, from Corvette, from Ferrari. You could just tell the trend of GT racing was, was on the up, uh, especially in the ALMS championship and uh, fun, fun racing with Flying Lizard, uh, a team that sort of California-based, great branding, great atmosphere, uh, work hard, play hard mentality, uh, good, good success and, and support um, from Porsche. And, and with that, it, it was just great to be back with my buddy, Jörg Bergmeister, who I had raced with um, in previous years at, at Peterson and Alex Job. And Jörg is a, a lengthy German, a uh, funny guy from, from the Cologne area who's uh, just always about uh, pushing the car, pushing the team, pushing the tire engineers. He just He's a racing family kind of guy that just leans on everything and everybody and uh, just a great mentor and friend. So really enjoyed my years uh, with Flying Lizard. And um, yeah, 2009, 2010 was a lot of victories. And, um, you know, as I reflect back on, on almost 20 years of racing with Porsche, um, so many of the fans really identify as Flying Lizard was a team that stuck for them, that they felt a part of. And it really uh, helped them fledge their passion for, for GT racing and for Porsche you know, in, in ALMS. So it was fun to be uh, one of the team members there um, and, and really get to interact with so many fans in those couple of years. Well, yeah, you know, you guys were dominant winning the championships in 09 and 2010. The other cool thing that you got to do in 2010 was back then we had the Gold Coast 600 V8 Supercars race and it was an international event. The very first time it was an international event in 2010 and you came down and you drove at one of the iconic teams in Australian motorsport, Gary Rogers Motorsport. You were driving with Michael Caruso. Talk about that experience of coming all the way to Australia with a bunch of your international friends to drive a V8 supercar. Yeah, you, you can't see the smile on my face right now, but I promise you there's a big one um, for a lot of reasons, um, mainly because living with Aussies, usually there was an auto action that came in the mail. So I found myself always reading up on Australian motorsport, uh, especially V8s and following all the different championships. And of course the drivers we've mentioned that I, I had relationships with and had either um, been friendly with or, or uh, raced on the same team with. And, and to finally go down under uh, to race and it, it lived up to all his expectations. It, it succeeded them. Um, but the other half of my smile is, is the name Gary Rogers. I mean, you guys know him, uh, what a character, uh, what a racer, uh, just, just, a, uh, couldn't have imagined uh, a better team for a kid, uh, to land in Australia for his first run in a V8 supercar, uh, in a pretty competitive time, um, in that championship with some amazing drivers that 
I had watched, you know, on, on TV and on YouTube, um, put the eights on the, on the edge. And now I was lining up next to him in the middle of their full championship. And we were all rookies, but, um, the side note and, and kind of the fun of, of the event in, in the Australian supercar championship, bringing, uh, internationals in for those, those races at, uh, the Gold Coast, we were completely, uh, just out of our depth in, in pace, in, in antics and everything and how to understand just how competitive it was and how unique it was to drive a V8 in, in those times with a spool instead of a diff and shifting with the left hand and, and the size of the cars and the horsepower. And, uh, I remember the spec brake package. It was, it felt like you were trying to stop a truck going into the first chicane at, uh, at the gold coast. So fun times. Uh, the team, uh, was super welcoming and, and made it easy for me to transition. But most of the internationals that first year were really big names from IndyCar and Formula One and sports car racing. And I was the least known driver by far out of all the drivers that were lining up on the grid, so much so that the organizers weren't really keen on Gary's uh, decision to bring me in. And uh, they didn't even want me staying in the same hotel as all the other internationals because they just thought I was sort of a no-namer. Uh, that wasn't really helping them promote their their big race, but uh, the race the races went well, and uh, I think we we led some laps in the race while I was in my stint um, on a little bit of an alternative strategy. But um, yeah, the party was not bad either after the race. I cannot believe that you have got to be joking about that, Patrick. Like you, the the, the career that you've had for you to say that, yeah, some of the organisers weren't sure about that decision. I'm sure you made them, you know, eat their words after that weekend because you know you were second in the international driver points for that weekend. You were fourth and eleventh in both the races, so you put in a fantastic job for someone that had literally come to the country and had very little to no experience in a supercar. You did a fantastic job. Yeah, there was a few like little asterisks to that uh, inner opportunity. First of all, um, when I called Lee Diffie, um, who I had gone back a long way in, in racing with, all the way back to my days in Formula Ford in England, he was calling some of my races. And I called Lee and I said, man, I want to get over to Australia. I've always wanted to drive a V8. And his first call was to Gary. And, and he promised Gary that, that I could deliver uh, the goods in the car. He, he probably said something to Gary like, you may never have heard of this guy, but um, I think he can do the job. And a lot of that was from the experience um, in what I was focused on in those years, driving a GT car, a Porsche um, 911 seemed to always help drivers transition to anything with a roof on it. They seem to be quick right off the bat um, coming out of a high level of 911 racing. And then the other side to it was I was doing quite a bit of NASCAR at that time. And, um, you know, being used to having a lot of horsepower, a lot of weight, not a lot of tire, um, I had definitely a little bit of an advantage over some of the other international guys that were maybe coming out of an Indy car or a, or an LMP prototype. So um, a few few unfair advantages, but yeah, Michael Caruso and Lee Holdsworth, those are two guys that you want to land in a in a team with as well because you know they're good dudes they're super open with their uh, share of knowledge and uh data and everything in between and uh it didn't hurt that that caruso and i are both uh vertically challenged as they say um so we <laughs> we fit in the same seat and pedals and uh yeah it was it was easy but um i wasn't ready for gary's um amazing personality i mean there were things like uh, Hawaiian shirts that we needed to wear to the driver's meeting and some of those antics that certainly knocked me out of my comfort zone because working for a Porsche as a factory driver, you know, you're in their black Hugo Boss 
you know, tight black pants, blacks every day and shined up shoes. And, and then it gets to Gary and he's handed me these like funky sun umbrella hats and, and, and tiki bar shirts to wear. Cause we were of course on the gold coast and uh, <laughs> it certainly, uh, it, it was a great laugh. And um, yeah, the result was, was awesome. That first race to finish fourth. And, and then we had a, a puncture in the second race, but still rebounded back to 11th. Um, I remember the triple eight cars, they had uh, Prio and, and, and Bourdais in them. And, and both those guys, I, I believe had raced um, at Bathurst and, and had some good V8 experience. And so other than those two, I felt like I held my own um, against most of the other internationals. And the main goal was just staying out of trouble as well. I mean, getting one of those cars around a, a track is not easy, but a street course is, is pretty tricky. And, and it was the middle of the, the main driver's championships. And um, each car had one international and one regular driver, sort of long distance driver. So certainly the, the guys who had the internationals probably were looking at their championship prospects and thinking this could be a really bad weekend for us with uh, a guest driver in the car for the full points payout. You know, as a driver, you, you really, you wanted to do well and, and put some points on the board uh, for your, for your main season driver, but um, keeping the car out of trouble uh, at the, at the Gold Coast wasn't, wasn't a small feat. Uh, you wanted to, um, you know, remember that these were full points paying races for, for the full season uh, drivers and, you know, them having only uh, half the cars having an international guest driver and the other half of the, the cars entered having their regular endurance drivers in the car. Um, it, it was an interesting dichotomy and, and certainly kept things mixed up. But um, yeah, the, 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 the hype was not around me. Let's just say that. So um, to even get up there and, and to, to battle and lead some laps was, was just an unbelievable, surreal experience. Well, you're definitely impressed because in 2011, you got invited back and you're with Walkinshaw Racing, one of the other iconic teams in the Supercars Championship, and you drove with Fabian Coulthard that weekend. And another strong run, 5th and 11th, I think, in the two races there. Yeah, what, what was it like driving for the Walkinshaw team? I was awesome. Um, you know, getting getting the call up. Um, I think my buddy James put a good word in for me at Walkinshaw because he was, he was running there. Courtney was running there at that time. And uh, joining Fabian was, was awesome. I had met him before when he was racing over in Europe and there's certainly a, a bigger team. Um, I believe it was the three cars, the two red cars and, and then the Bundaberg car and, um, a different atmosphere, uh, a lot more, a lot more, uh, serious off the track, but, um, similar on track. I mean, Gary ran an amazing organization and then, um, joining the Walkinshaw guys was, was a great, uh, goal of mine as well to be in there with kind of the factory supported Holden team. Um, so yeah, just, just two amazing years. Uh, I wish it would have been longer, but we had some clashes in the, in the calendar, uh, the third and fourth time that they did it, uh, or maybe it was the second time. I don't know. I missed a couple of, of times when they had the internationals, but, um, a wild and and fun time and great memories. Most definitely in, in that same period, you were still doing the American Lamar series, 2011, uh, fourth in the standings. You had a win at Laguna Seca, three podiums. It was a tougher season. However, you guys closed it out very strong. Yeah, you're testing my memory. I they kind of all start to blend together, but um, really comp- competitive years. Um, great, great competition with with more and more manufacturer support. Um, and ALMS, just a, a a series that was constantly evolving. Um, mixed discipline, different types of drivers, lots of yellow flags. Um, great TV racing, uh, if you will, and and a cool time to be part of the sport. 
And you also did the Pirelli World Challenge as well in 2011. Talk about stepping into that series. Uh, Pirelli World Challenge is a cool championship. Um, sprint racing, single driver format, standing start. Uh, you had all walks of life of cars. You had an all-wheel drive, Turbo Volvo. Um, you had the factory Cadillac program uh, with Andy Pilgrim and Johnny O'Connell. Um, we were a smaller Southern California team running a, a 911, and uh, it was it was also wild to jump from that car, which had ABS um, and and a different tire. We were running a Pirelli that year, and then on the same weekends, often I would jump over to the the IMSA car, the ALMS car with Flying Lizards, and be you know with non ABS Michelin tire, etc. So um, multiple race championships on on one weekend is is a big part of um sports car racing driver's life and and fun to double double up on uh, the prize money as well well yeah and then 2012 another year driving for flying lizard in the american lamar series i uh, got a win there at lime rock uh and yeah another good season there in the pirelli world challenge 2013 now so this was an interesting season now uh, because at that point in time we were speaking to um Joe Foster and Patrick Dempsey, because they were embarking on their challenge to race at Le Mans once more. And you, of course, were part of that program. Talk about joining up with uh, the original Dempsey racing team for that ambition to go and race an all-American lineup at Le Mans. Yeah, wild times. I underestimated um, the whole opportunity, if I'm honest. Um, obviously, I knew Patrick uh, personally, both being from Los Angeles. Uh, had run into him a fair amount of times on the way to or from a track, but I had never worked inside an organization with him or, or traveled with him on a race weekend. And um, going over and, and running Le Mans with him, um, kind of uh, on a last-minute opportunity, we were able to do one test before. But joining him and Joe uh, just had a lot of fun. Um, the team, um, Proton Competition, was a team that I had known and raced uh, against in Europe. Uh, quite a bit and and just a great german organization really fun people to be around but yeah we had a lot of fun uh we ran really well uh in 2013 and uh just was um there was so much celebrity uh following and and at lamar it seemed as though patrick was even a bigger personality and a bigger celebrity than he was even at home in the states that there were just it seemed like tens of thousands of people around us wherever we went you know, between the hotel and the track and seeing life um, from his perspective was a little bit daunting. I mean, there were just seas of people that were wanting to just have a photo with him or, or even reach out and, and grab him by the shoulder. And, you know, as a teammate, you sort of become caught up in that um, more so from a protective standpoint. I remember uh, co coming out of the race car in the middle of the night at Le Mans that year. And there were so many photographers around the car trying to get a shot of him going in for his night stint that the tire changers couldn't get to even change the tires. That's how many uh, photojournalists were around the car in the middle of the race. And I remember just grabbing them by their, their necks and by anything I could, their, their suits and just pulling them um, back away from the car so that our crew guys could get in there to change the tires. We were leading the, the class at that point, And I just thought to myself, this is not going to be uh, the time that we lose the lead to some photography uh, experts. So um, fun times, fun antics, and uh, certainly learned how to, to get on an airplane quickly and get off an airplane quickly. I never realized how many secret passages there were to uh, getting out of a uh, of an international airport, but uh, fun, fun times. <laughs> 
Well, you know, he spoke very highly at the time, you know, about the work that you'd done with him as well. What was it like, you know, like all these years later, you know, of being a successful driver and now you're mentoring these other drivers coming up in the sport? Because, you know, Patrick was quite late to coming into motorsport. What did you make of, uh, you know, his progression in the early days? Uh, it was super rewarding, um, mainly because he was making so much progress uh, from where we started until we, we finished. We ran 13 and 14 at Le Mans, and then we ran the full WEC season together in 15, which is really when I got a lot more time uh, to work with him. And, and yeah, just uh, amazing because he had stated early on that his, his sort of boyhood dream was to finish on the podium at Le Mans. And I thought to myself, it's possible, um, but it's not going to be easy. Uh, there were there were certainly some many seconds that we were going to have to shave off of his lap times and get him comfortable and get him rested and consistent and um, his diet and his application to motorsport. You know, like you said, he started later, but it wasn't so much about when he started racing. But I think early on, some of the the recommendations or some of the commercial opportunities were throwing him in the deep end, and he he sort of missed some of those early steps that a lot of the drivers um, that I grew up with had of racing spec series, you know, Formula Ford or, or uh, Carrera Cup Porsche, where you're really in a pack of drivers who all have the same or very similar equipment. And, you know, he kind of debuted straight into different forms of GT racing. So I took him back to his roots uh, or to my roots, I should say, and back to the roots of racing and, and put him in a rally car and put him in a sprint car and put him in a go-kart and we just worked hard during the week. Um, and my goal was to really expose him to lots of loose surfaces and harder tires um, so that I could adapt his style to being a lot more comfortable to having the car kind of step out on him and, and getting some natural car control because he was really tight. He was, he was holding on to the steering wheel so tight, and, and he was spinning the car quite a lot. And, and I was kind of looking back through some of the data traces, and I realized that, you know, he just needed to kind of loosen up and, and let the car um, be at some yaw and, and have some of that, like, reactive, instinctive correction on the steering wheel. And, and as soon as he was more confident in, in where the car was underneath him, um, he just excelled. He, he had more fun. He was so much more consistent. I, I never saw him really spin the car or, or even have an off. And, and it really just all started to come together. And, and, and that was more rewarding to see somebody find – their confidence uh, in a in a race car at speed at, on the big stage, especially when somebody like Patrick who had so much more pressure on him. I mean, he was drawing numbers at Le Mans that were bigger than Audi's numbers from a marketing and coverage standpoint. And Audi was winning the race overall, and he was a single driver in the fourth class of the of the whole field. I mean, we were in GTE Am. And, and the marketing return numbers of Patrick being in the race were, were eclipsing everybody. So it just is a measure of how many eyeballs and how much pressure was really on him. And it comes back to that kind of thing that we talked about earlier on is just getting the mental um, in check to where those distractions and, and all that self-talk that might slip into the athlete's head um, worked a lot with him on that as well. And, and so it was really, really a lot of fun. And speaking of Hollywood actors, Paul Newman is another Hollywood actor, of course, that definitely made his mark in the motorsport world. Tell us, in the very early days of your GT career, did you come across Paul Newman at all? I came across Paul um, as a kind of a, a youngster hanging out at the cart 
and IndyCar paddock, um, just networking, meeting people from the media, um, trying to meet IndyCar teams and, and hope for a, a little bit of an opportunity or some sponsorship and hanging around uh, Newman Hoff racing um, in sort of the mid nineties, I was introduced to Paul and uh, just such a gentleman. Uh, he was, he was short on time. I think he was catching a flight out, but um, I was introduced as kind of a karting kid and he, he wanted to ask me a lot of questions about shifter carts and you could tell that he just, he loved to drive and, and, you know, he wasn't in his active days of racing at that time more as a team owner, but you could tell that he, he stopped everything just to talk racing. So I think you find that a lot with, with the people um, that, that really grab a hold of motorsport later in life after being successful is they, they have so much appreciation for the sport. It's, it's not just their job. It's not something that they've grown up around and, and take for granted. They're, they're such pure sort of fans of the sport. And uh, was, he's a, a total gentleman and a, and a cool guy to uh, come across as a teenager. That's fantastic. Well, back on the career timeline, 2014 was an interesting year in American motorsport because we saw the unification of the two sports car championships and it became the IMSA championship once again. And yeah, 2014 for you. Talk about that uh, year driving the Porsche because what a strong start and end to the championship year for you there. Yeah, that was wild. Um, Merging IMSA and Grand Am was was a day I never thought I would see. Uh, you know, two rival sports car championships in the States. In some ways, there was room for both of them because they kind of went racing in very different ways. But in other ways, you really hoped that you could have one championship where Daytona, Sebring, Petit, Lamar, Watkins Glen was all part of, of one season and one, one points race. And, and that was really coming to light um, right in front of our eyes. And I remember 13 was kind of a transition year. I was working with Porsche Motorsport North America to try and help them uh, formulate a, a new partnership with a, a factory team. And, and that team was Core Autosport. And we ran as independents for partial season in 13. And Porsche saw everything they wanted to see. They knew the team was, was real and legit. And, and we put some good points on the board that year. So we, we linked up. Uh, we came out into 14 with two full factory um, RSRs in the, in the IMSA championship in, in GT. And, yeah, great memories winning Sebring um, with, with my buddy Jurg and, and, a, and a newer driver to the Porsche crop, Michael Christensen, who's now you know easily one of their quickest and, and most successful drivers um, in today's lineup. So um, fun memories. Uh, remembering back to that year, there was a big competition from Chrysler with their Viper program. Corvette, of course, was in there, um, Ferrari. So yeah, just the, uh, every single one of those GT years, multiple uh, manufacturers and close racing seems to be the theme that I keep coming back to. Well, yeah, and, and 2015, the year after that, um, you know, we'd mentioned there you'd been to Lamar with Patrick Dempsey and the Dempsey team in 2013 and 14. 2015, you made the decision to do a full season in the FIA WEC, the World Endurance Championship, where you teamed up with Patrick Dempsey and also Marco Seyfried in the Dempsey Proton Porsche. Talk about that year competing in the World Endurance Championship because, you know, like you said just before, you'd worked with Patrick, worked on getting his driving up, you know, to that next level. And then here you were as well out there competing in Europe once again. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, you know, the, the championship at IMSA was really growing and the competition was surging. And I got a phone call um, that basically... Uh, Germany called in and told me Porsche told me that hey you know 13 and 14 was such a an amazing success 
in Lamar with Patrick um, from a, a marketing standpoint. And he really wants to go for the full year. And, and we want to do that as well. And, and he's kind of put your name as number one on his list. So we're going to pull you out of um, the U S and send you to the WEC with him. And initially I wasn't sure how keen I was on the, on the idea, but fast forward to a full season um, kind of got to pick, pick Marco as the silver driver in the championship, a guy that I had known for a long time and just such a loyal, quick, easy, easy to work with type guy. And uh, we went and traveled the world and, um, you know, spent time testing at all these tracks with a great support budget um, from the sponsors that had come on board with Patrick and, and the team um, and, and knew uh, everybody within the team after those years at Le Mans. So um, racing in Bahrain and China and Japan, um, the U.S., uh, you know, all of the European kind of strong suit tracks like Nürburgring and Spa. It was a, a, a crazy season, um, but really successful. Our two goals, were to get him on the podium at Le Mans, which in the closing hours, we, we slipped from third into second um, with some attrition ahead of us. And, and a third was going to be a monster uh, result, but second was, was that much better. And, you know, I've told this story before. Usually second is the, the, the crappiest position um, at the finish for a racing driver because it means you were that close to winning. But um, compared to who we were up against and how hard we fought, um, we were we were not a favorite for a podium, so the finish second was an amazing amazing success. And Patrick, I just remember him; he was totally beside himself, like in tears. Just oh, he was screaming at the top of his lungs, and and the interviews he was giving just had all of us in tears. So, I mean, it sounds sappy, but uh, on a on a life journey, um, to see somebody um, realize their their life goal is is better than any trophy that I've ever won. So. Uh, that was super memorable, um, probably the most memorable Le Mans out of 15 in a row that I had done. Um, that was that 2015 year. Uh, and then we backed it up in, in 15 at Fuji uh, with, a, with a victory in class, which was a whole, a whole nother level of, of relief and, and just total uh, pandemonium from Patrick. And, and to be on the podium with him in Fuji um, and, and to take a victory. Porsche um, had kind of been the car to have in the second part of that season. And, and we just put a race together that was mixed conditions and, um, you know, kept it on the black stuff in the wet and then finished in the dry and, and finished strong. So, yeah, really fun to travel the world in that championship. Most definitely. And you went back there again the year after with the Abu Dhabi Proton team. Yeah, just talk about that whole experience of going back to Europe again. What was going through your mind at the time? Because like you said, initially there was a little hesitation until you found out the team that you were going to be working with. But what was it like, especially, you know, that second season as well? It was great. Um, Patrick had to move on to uh, work and family commitments. And I got the call from the team to uh, continue forward uh, with Khaled and also with David Hansen, who I knew from racing in the States. And um, the competition was, was just pushing even higher. Um, the tracks I knew at that point, I knew the team and uh, had a couple of victories. I don't remember where we finished in the championship, but um, really successful year and uh, amazing to go you know, win and race uh, in Mexico City. Um, such a, a crazy track and, and a great city to race in. And also um, in the UAE over in Bahrain, um, just a track that 
was so hard on tires and you really had to pace yourself through the stint to make those tires last. So um, really rewarding racing and, and um, just wild amounts of jet lag. I just remember um, living my life. I had a young, my first kid um, was, was just about a year old and it was easy to wake up in the middle of the night with him because I was always jet lagged coming from um, <laughs> all over the world, uh, you know, from each race. Well, yeah, you were doing everything, you know, not only the, you know, WEC, you're doing the Pirelli World Challenge and, yeah, even doing some of the IMSA events as well to close out the season. It was it was quite chaotic. Yeah, how did you manage to balance it all? And like you said, you had the little kid as well at the time. Yeah, those years were um, pretty trying running, you know, three different championships and, and being on a different continent every week. But I just kept rem- reminding myself that this is what you've worked for uh, your whole life and um, never to really get down or, or have a complaint about being tired or busy or, or racing too many cars. Because in the grand scheme of things, although consciously it, it wasn't deemed fun, um, it was a, a life's dream for, for a young kid who just you know was crazy about going to the short tracks and hanging out with his family. So um, I think we pushed some, some serious miles that year, maybe close to 200 days of travel when you get PR and coaching and uh your responsibilities as a factory driver in between those championships so um great memories but um glad they're behind me now well yeah well 2017 uh you know you'd you'd been to the mountain to compete at the Bathurst 12 hour a few times uh with your old friend uh Alex Davidson and also David Calvert Jones and then in 2017 you teamed up with Calvert Jones Mark Lieb Another Australian, Matt Campbell. Talk about that that race weekend. Uh, I mean, Campbell was just such a breath of fresh air. Um, you, you know him. A lot of your listeners know him. He's just a, a great guy. Uh, gets in the car uh, with a smile, comes out with a smile, uh, doesn't ask for much. And, and at the mountain, um, he's as quick as anybody. Um, fun racing with David Calvert Jones, you know, Los Angeles based Aussie, uh, knows his way around, uh, Bathurst and really put all of his energy and focus into one race a year. And that was Bathurst. And he had great sponsors. Um, I have fond memories of working with the ice break guys and, and all the different promotions we did leading up to the race. And then just to finally, um, be able to win class there, um, at the mountain, um, and add that to the CV um such a an iconic racetrack all around the world and and you just hope that one time you'll get the chance to race there uh let alone to walk up on on the podium at the end of the weekend so um really grateful for for those four years in in racing uh at the 12 hour and fun to come back and and meet some of the people that i met initially racing v8 um but now i was there in in the country that i loved racing at in australia but in machinery that i was much more comfortable in and and luckily because I couldn't imagine showing up to Bathurst in a V8 for your first time and not knowing the car or the track. I mean, that I've seen a lot of internationals do that. And after, after <laughs> driving that racetrack, I have even more respect for those guys. Well, yeah. Well, you know, winning there at the Bathurst 12 hour, you know, you'd won so many other iconic endurance events. The other one we didn't even get to was at 24 hour at Nürburgring in 2011. I have to ask you though, competing in all these 12 hour and 24 hour races, Obviously, you know, they're all the same in, you know, time duration. However, they're very different tracks that you're racing at. Do you have to – how do you differentiate your pra- your training schedule for each event? 
Yeah, there's, I mean, I think about the first time I went to the Nürburgring and did the Nordschleife, and I remember Craig Lowndes and, and Luffy were over there as well, and you just had to put the laps in. We were all sort of rookies there, and you had to go do the VLN races, and you had to really get normalized uh, race condition laps under your belt before uh, the races. And if you didn't, then you kind of went through your first or second year at those, those tracks or at least your first and second stint where you were learning and, and knocking lap time down off of your, your lap time each, each lap. But this day and age, the preparation is much more sim-based, and you see drivers that have never been on a racetrack before, and they're up to speed four or five laps in. And um, it's not that long ago that we really didn't have the tools or, or the precision of, of scanned racetracks to give you the chance to run these laps. So the neat thing about that for, for drivers is they're, they're much more prepared when they show up these days, but also for, for fans and, and for amateur enthusiasts to get to jump into these cars in a simulated way and, and run some of these tracks that are laser scanned. It's, it's super cool. And uh, I wish I had the tool. I wish I could have learned, uh, you know, Bathurst or, or Nürburgring um, on a, on a full scale sim before getting there. But um, beyond that, it's, it's really just being prepared, um, knowing your time zones, knowing all the rules, having all of your pre-race mentality and, and your fitness and, and everything together so that you're not um, using your spares, your reserves, or, or any of the physicality that you'll need for the race. And, and really, as I went through and did maybe more than 40, 24-hour races, one thing that I learned was if you track your caloric intake and, and your hydration and you really stay ahead of that and never let yourself get anywhere near dehydration or never let your, your calorie burn um, be greater than your intake of, of food and, and nutrition, it, it makes a massive difference for, for uh, how strong you finish the race. And it, it sounds obvious, but a lot of times with adrenaline uh, coming out of the car or, or the need or desire to sleep, um, you, you get very far off uh, and you're doing you know eight, nine stints in a race and, you know, sometimes you're burning, I'm probably, I'm guessing, but 4,000 calories, uh, you know, you really have to stay and, and focus on taking as much food in as you can. Well, yeah, some drivers manage to and some don't. Do you manage to get any power naps in during, you know, your off stints during these long races? Oh, for sure. I, I think it's almost required, uh, especially if, if you're a closing driver and you're expected to be at the racetrack and in, in, in your suit, if you will, for 36 hours. Cause if you think about it, there's oftentimes a full day at the track with warm up and everything else before um, the race even starts. And a lot of these races start, you know, three or four o'clock in the afternoon. So um, you, you've got to get some sleep. Uh, and, and that takes some practice to get yourself wound down, um, get yourself dried off and in, in a quiet spot and, and, and be able to fall asleep quickly after coming off the racetrack sometimes, inside of an hour you need to be um you know changed and maybe get a massage get some food in you and be to sleep and it really does become about time management so um i wish i had more of that early on in my career a real study and a real science and a real focus just uh, how much um time management and and all of those aspects of preparation feed into your performance in the car and I mean, without being too cliche or too American, um, I feel like that applies in, in sort of everything you do, whether that's your own training or sport or it's business or school. 
um, uh, as they say, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So I'm a big proponent of, of looking at the science. And if you look at some of the best drivers who have won many championships in, in, in any discipline of racing or, or another sportsman, I think you'll see that they're just absolutely intense and detailed to the max. And, and they never really rely just on their talent, but on the whole game and how they apply um, themselves to their life in general. And, and that's why sometimes they're such extreme characters and maybe they're not the most popular or easiest people to be around. But um, as far as performing, they're just such sheer competitors that all of their energy goes into, um, you know, that whole game of, of being that, that sportsman. Most definitely. Well, yeah, you know, back onto the career timeline in 2018, you focused your attention more on the IMSA championship. Once again, uh, you started the year at Daytona. I think that was also the year that Fernando Alonso made an appearance at the Daytona 24. What was it like, coming against a driver that you'd, you know, that you'd raced against back in your karting days? Ah, it's cool to see um, drivers that, that you sort of know from the young days um, coming over and racing in the States, especially at Daytona. There were a lot of sort of drivers in their off-season that joined up and, and big names that joined the, the 24 hours of Daytona. It was kind of a race of champions, if you will. And for, for a lot of us, it was our normal schedule first race of the championship or or the race that we all did um and and to have guys like alonzo come over was just massive for the storyline of the race it, it brought so much spectator interest to to these races and uh love that international flair um i think it was last year or the year before i ran into robert kubica or kubica depending on how you pronounce his last name and i don't think i had seen him in over 20 years and we just ran into each other like walking out of the pits and uh you know just never changed a guy like that that's had so much success trials and tribulations in formula one in 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 rally racing and and lots of different disciplines and he was the same robert that i remember this this small kid from poland who would come over to the karting tracks of italy with his dad in a in an old iveco you know van and and run against some of the big teams so yeah it's it's kind of crazy to think that for 25 years been running in the same circles of kids and um that's the part of my career that i'll take with me is is all of these, you know, champions and, and heroes of mine that uh, I got to share the track with. Most definitely. And then let's go to 2019. Uh, another jam-packed season for your schedule. You were doing the IMSA Championship as well as the uh, Blank Pain GT World Challenge Series as well with Wright Motorsport. Talk about 2019, the year before the pandemic. You won, I think, at Sonoma. Uh, you had a fair few strong runs there that year. Yeah, wild times um, racing, you know, World Challenge and SRO competition is just, uh, it's sprint racing at its finest. I mean, they added some discipline of endurance where there was a driver change, but for the most part, these races were never longer than two years. And with that, it, it just meant that you were pushing the cars just absolutely quality paced every single session, um, every single time you went onto the racetrack. And uh, that's what you want to do as a driver is just lean on the race car, uh, rip, rip and tear, as they say, and, and push all the way to the end. So um, fun season, loved racing with Wright Motorsports. Um, if you back up to 2016, that's when, when the guys really took me as a refugee from not having a, a full-time team after the team I started the championship with kind of went bust middle of the season. And so, yeah, spent, spent some great years uh, with them in, in those championships and uh, certainly – 
you know, just, just fond memories of, of a, of a championship that started off as kind of a, um, a sideshow and, and a wild, um, you know, Pirelli world challenge. And, um, as SRO got involved and, um, the manufacturer started subscribing to it, it was uh, a great place to, to run. Well, yeah. And before we talk about 2020, you know, you raced at some tracks like Sonoma, where many people know, of course, with the road race in the NASCAR Cup Series. You've dabbled in NASCAR for, you know, a number of years as well. Talk about all those years competing in the A&E, A&E Series and then making your Cup Series debut. Nah, NASCAR was amazing. Um, the, the It's a very long story, but uh, I first went to a NASCAR race in 1988. I went to Bristol um, because my family had seen the race on TV and they just thought to themselves, we have to see this for ourselves. I mean, Bristol being such an extreme banking, um, crazy spectacle of the sport. So it was really burned in my mind. Um, and I, and I loved the sport, especially in the eighties and nineties, um, and, and followed it quite closely. Um, there was the allure of the money. Um, but also realizing that the, those championships ran sometimes 36 race weekends a year. So yeah, the money was good. Uh, at the very top, but a lot of the middle of the pack and, and the lower, smaller teams, there wasn't a lot of money for the drivers, and, and you really spent your whole life going in circles, if you will, on, on oval tracks across the south. And for me, it was an opportunity um, that came my way to kind of pave my own route and get uh, sort of an ABC, if you will, lesson in all of the different um, types of discipline of stock car racing. And so rather than jumping in at like a nationwide or a cup level and, and just trying to be a road course ringer, um, I had some sponsors that really wanted to uh, get dirty and, and go down to the South and race in the late models and on the weekly series. So we started in late models. Uh, we went up through the K&N East and West championship, won some races there, raced against some cup drivers and cup teams and really understood what it was like to get these big race cars uh, around the track. Um, burning the tires off of them, and I think they dropped some three seconds a lap after four laps on a on a set of tires, and then you were just sliding around and surviving and 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 racing really hard. But the oval side of it, which was a big part of my learning, was also an amazing opportunity and and such a different art to tuning the cars. Uh, the racecraft was really setting up the path sometimes laps before it even took place, so it's much harder than it looks uh, from a distance. Uh, it seems like you can just jump in there and hold it wide open and, and slide around the top and pass these guys. But once you get into the science of how they set these cars up and how much they rely on the driver for that, it, you realize how good they are at that level. And the racecraft is also just intense. I mean, you're sometimes, you know, three wide, three deep, and you can't move an inch either way. And you have to really rely on your spotters and uh, a whole other terminology of language and everything in between. So, yeah, it was, it was a cool experience. Um, I think one of the highlights was winning a, an ARCA race, which was essentially a cup car in the second tier series. Um, and, and then making a cup debut, uh, I had one start at Watkins Glen and it didn't go to plan. Um, we blew an engine in practice and, and crashed the car uh, on our own oil. And uh, so we had to start the race in a backup car and, and really weren't able to compete, but uh, still the line up there with Jimmy Johnson and Jeff Gordon and, race against some of my my boyhood heroes it was it was something that i knew going in with a small team it was going to be hard to break in to the top half of the field but still to be out there um and to kind of complete that whole 
wild journey of a couple of years racing stock cars was was a fun little uh, stop off from pretty much a, mainly a 911, but uh, almost exclusively a Porsche career. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Why do you think, you know, we've seen many drivers from, you know, open wheelers and even sports car racing try their hands at NASCAR. And it's always been a very difficult transition. You know, Patrick Carpentier, uh, Dario Franchitti. Uh, we still see people like Andy Lally from the sports car world dabble in some of the road races and James Davison. But why do you think it's so difficult making that adapt, adapting to the, the Cup Series compared to, you know, open wheelers and sports car racing? Uh, there's a few things. I mean, you see Marcus Ambrose. He went down um, or, or, or came to the U.S. And, and went and lived in the South. And he really did compete, especially on the road courses, but even on the ovals. And I think like anything, just like V8s or, or GT cars, um, going against guys that have been there for, uh, you know, more than a decade, there's really no um, exchange for, for having great equipment and being there because you deserve to be there and, and really having the speed and the experience. And so you have to have it all. Um, you can't, you can't make up for the equipment, uh, as a driver. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the, you're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get that opportunity unless you've really been around and you're a known quantity. Um, and so I think it's really just, um, putting the time in, putting the laps in and, and establishing yourself. So, yeah, the, the NASCAR allure is, is interesting, but the cars are, are so different to drive, especially from um, a driver who spent most of their years in high downforce cars. I think those are the guys that had to work the hardest at it. But um, for a V8 driver or for a GT driver, I think there were um, some decent parallels. And uh, the biggest thing that's changed in this, this time compared to maybe 15 years ago when a, a Montoya or a Pruitt or an Ambrose could come in and and race for victories, um, at least on the road courses, is um, the drivers um, in NASCAR, the regular drivers, have really, really excelled and stepped up their game um, on the road courses. And the younger generation, they come from a discipline now where they understand that road course racing has to be part of their upbringing. They can't just be circle track only and then try to figure out how to shift gears and and turn right um, at a high level, which is how it used to be. Um, so yeah, the, the, the cars, the technology, the, the stimulation, the, the, the shaker rigs, everything now has just pushed the sport and they're doing a lot more road course racing. I mean, it used to be two stops a year, um, at Watkins Glen and Sonoma, but now you see all kinds of new stops, um, even in the cup level, um, the entertainment, the numbers on TV have been really strong. And so a lot more road course racing involved now. So it's, it's much more difficult to just dip in and, and get a shot. You kind of have to be a regular season guy, but you still see a few um, in the, in the second tier series, the, the nation nationwide or Xfinity, whatever the, the name brand partner <laughs> is these days, but the second tier series, um, you do still see some road course ringers that they crack the top five um, on occasion, but, but to win one of those, most of the time it's a regular season driver, even if his background isn't road course racing. Yeah. Well, Onto the timeline again, 2020, for everyone, this was a very, very weird, very unique year. It started off, you know, pretty normal for, for a lot of the motorsport world. Uh, you were right racing in the GTD car for the IMSA Championship. Things started off at the Rolex 24 at Daytona, obviously, but talk about everything that transpired with the pandemic and what it did for motorsport, what it did for you personally, 
because it was quite a roller coaster for everyone in the motorsport world. But, you know, after things started to calm down a little, things resumed and you were on fire with your results. You had four podium finishes and you closed out the season with a win at Sebring. Talk about 2020. Yeah, wild, wild year um, outside of the car. Um, being shut down for three months uh, was was different for everybody. Um, personally, it, it put me in a headspace where I really got to step back from racing and, and look at everything in life and, and understand uh, what the whole game was about, um, both in motorsport and outside of motorsport. And, and it was it was good for me. Um, I was I was supported and, and lucky to have a young family around me, a great wife and and. My parents uh, live about a couple hours north, so we spent some time up there uh, on their ranch uh, just to kind of get away from it all and, and get outside of the city. Um, I realized that the, the trend or, or the news was we were going to go back to racing sort of middle of the summer and that we were going to come back in a different modified schedule and it was going to be in Florida. And Florida in the summer is one place you don't want to be. It's just so hot and so humid the best time to be in Florida is in the, in the winter. And, and now we were going to be racing at, at, at tracks that we normally were there in, in the spring at latest. So just went back to training um, really, really hard. Uh, a lot of carding, uh, a lot of cardio, a lot of weights. And when I got back um, to the race car, uh, I just felt, you know, 10 years younger. Uh, I was clear in my head and, and felt fit and rested and, and hungry and I had a team behind me that was the same, and we were just nailing it uh, with pit stop strategy. The Porsche was was reliable as ever, but also quick, um, and and had some strong teammates. And with that, um, one of my most memorable seasons as a driver. And we didn't start off that great, um, but we had a really consistent run um, through the middle of the championship. And uh, as some other teams kind of had some highs and lows, and certainly there were some favorites above us who had kind of two pro drivers in the car where we had a, an amateur starting and then I was finishing um, as the pro. Uh, we had some, some positions to climb back and claw back uh, up to the front toward the end of the races. But um, winning that final race of the year at Sebring, um, just, just a crazy race that went down to the wire and racing through the pitch black of Sebring um, really late in the season, pretty cold. Uh, we had a broken damper, so it, the car was a little bit hurt, but it seemed to actually help us on traction to have a rear damper that was soft, and uh, we had some good fight off of the corners. And, uh, yeah, missed the championship by one point, which was uh, unreal, um, but also finishing uh, with a victory is, is the best way to head into the off season. So uh, just one of my favorite races or race seasons uh, of, of my run um, in my whole career and uh, just so close. Oh, yeah, it was quite remarkable. And even for, for one of the other categories as well, we had Ryan Briscoe. He came very close to winning that championship as well. And unfortunately, that final race, they just got pipped. But yeah, great, great to see, you know, you get a win to close out the year there at Sebring. Talk about season 2021. Talk about this year because it's been another eventful year, you know, another year of the pandemic, obviously. And you made the decision not that long ago to step away from full-time driving. Before we talk about that, talk about the on-track action earlier on in the year. Yeah, great season. Uh, we ended up winning the Endurance Cup, which uh, is the four Enduros, um, the points championship that runs independent to the overall season. So really strong on the endurance races. 
down to the team. Uh, we had the pace as drivers, but the team just put us in the position to win that. Um, with strategy uh, pit stops, uh, the amount of pit stops and yellow flags in, in American GT racing is crazy. And so you really have to play the strategy to get all of the points because they pay points not just for the finish of the race, but at the certain milestones um, during a 24-hour race. For instance, I think it's the 8-hour, uh, the 12-hour, um, and then the 24-hour. So you have to really uh, play your strategy but keep yourself in the game for the, the overall uh, win as well. So um, fun to win that. Uh, didn't find as much pace or success uh, in, in the beginning and the end of the sprint races, but uh, through the middle of the year, we had, I think, a run of three or four podiums and, and in this discipline of GT, with GT3 and ABS and all the manufacturers, I mean, there's 12, 13 cars that could win the race legitimately every single weekend. So um, even podiums uh, at times felt as, as big as a victory in other eras of the sport. Um, so great time. Uh, and, and just to mention that the team, um, you know, I've been with Wright Motorsports since 2016. And to run five seasons, with them um the type of team that i want as a driver um not the biggest team uh really focused on one or two cars but highly highly uh engineering focused um and then just keeping it real and having a good time and not taking yourself too seriously so you know after you've been at the sport uh you know a while you really want that blend of a race car that's just perfect but maybe not as many responsibilities off the track or as much sort of fanfare. Um, and so it was a very mellow atmosphere and, and one that worked well for me and just loved the people that I was going racing with. So uh, I thought to myself at the end of the championship, um, man, it's, it's, it's pretty unbelievable run uh, for me. And uh, I turned 40, which many say is, is not young, uh, but many say is, is not old. And, I just felt like it was, um, you know, the right time for me. It was really a decision I made to step out of full-time racing uh, based on another opportunity, and that was to work with a company that's given me um, pretty much my whole career. And I had two contracts in front of me um, that, that meant I needed to, you know, really focus uh, my time on, on some different challenges inside of motorsport and in the road car side of things. And a, a runway um, that could be 25 to 30 years of work for me um, and, and work that's interesting and competitive and um, engaging and, and the ability to still have uh, interaction with fans and, and race teams, et cetera. So, yeah, that was uh, a, a, tough, a tough opportunity, but, or, or sorry, a tough decision, but also a pretty easy decision. And it was one that I didn't take lightly. I, I had thought about it um, for the whole year. And, and I'll admit it's not uh, easy to have that decision kind of hanging over your head and, and the option to go either way uh, and, and to still keep your focus and to still get in the car clear-minded and put all of that to the side and, and perform. Because, you know, there's, there's opportunity, there's sponsors, there's people that have invested a lot of money to give you the chance to uh, be the lead driver on the team. And the last thing you want to do is send the wrong message that um, you're not there uh, with any less than 100% uh, of a race driver's focus. So um, a lot to balance. I was certainly relieved uh, to finally get that announcement out at the beginning of the, the final race of the season and then to go out and, and race 
and battle at the front and, and to put some lap times and, and some solid stints up on the board. And knowing that that was my, my last full-time race, um, it was ironic that my engineer uh, had me out there for a triple stint um, kind of in the late afternoon into the sunset and, and some of the toughest conditions of Petit Le Mans. But um, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way because I just felt when I got on the airplane um, after that race that, you know, motorsport was was the full focus of my life uh, for, for two-thirds of my years on this planet. And uh, kind of went out um, still in in what I felt was the prime of my ability, and uh, can kind of now go off and, and and take the next chapter, but also not calling it retirement, not saying that I'm not going to race ever again. But as far as full time um, discipline, at least for right now, um, 2022 will bring a, a different schedule. Yeah, well, you know, it's been around a month since you've made that decision. How's it all sunk in a month later? And what do you think that 2022 schedule is going to look like? It, it feels right. It feels good. Um, I have uh, my own company uh, with a, a great team of employees, and uh, we do uh, experiential marketing. Uh, we, we put a, a brand called Look Good Cult out there in the world for vintage Porsche enthusiasts to enjoy. Uh, we do a, an annual uh, gathering. And we have an apparel company online. And, and all of that means that I run a full schedule uh, Monday through Friday, regardless of if I'm traveling or racing. And it just allowed me to um, get clear about where I want to take that company in the future as kind of the co-founder and president of the company. And also um, to get out in and drive on some tracks without a lap time hanging over my head. I've been busy with Porsche on the rollout of the new Taycan electric car. Uh, the GTS variant of this car is a sporty uh, variant that Porsche puts across all of its different platforms of, of car offerings on the street. So uh, it's been busy, but uh, there's been plenty of time to reflect. And, uh, you know, I got a six-year-old uh, a boy and a three-year-old girl and, and, and a great wife. And so um, they're happy I'm home and uh, spent some time out at the BMX track. That's kind of um, the, the motorsport that I've been touching or, or non-motorsport, but the racing that I've been touching. Uh, most recently and, and having some fun on two wheels. My son races and, and I get out there and, and race in the old man class in the, the 36 to 40 year old class. And uh, it's pretty fun to line up uh, on the gate on a bicycle and uh, let it rip down, down the hill. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can imagine. You mentioned the two young kids there. Have they shown any interest towards getting involved in karting or anything anytime soon? Uh, my son is He's mental about all racing. I mean, he can tell you about every driver and every car. Uh, he, he loves watching it um, and, and coming to the track, you know, when, when we're close by. He doesn't come to all the races, but uh, I'm glad that he was of an age where he'll remember, um, you know, my time as a full-time driver. But uh, he really enjoys karting. We don't race. We just go out and test and have fun and let him learn about lines and setup and working on the cart. But, you know, at six years old, I, I don't think he needs to be fully involved in, in the motorsport scene just yet. But uh, if he wants to do it and, and he and he puts the work into it, uh, yeah, sure, I'll support him in some local karting. But I think uh, my goal is is to, you know, let my kids make their own decisions. And uh, the BMX has been um, great for both of them just because it's so much about momentum and, and pushing hard to the end because it's super physical. And they're learning about, you know, racing arm to arm. And I think there's a lot of parallels that they'll take into – uh, any kind of driving or racing uh, in the future. So I'm a big advocate for, for the bike racing right now. 
Yeah, and you mentioned Luftekut. So tell our listeners about Luftekut and some of the events that you've done. Talk about, yeah, what it's all about and what you've done already with it. Uh, in the most simple form, with turning a, what, what a static car display uh, is known as, uh, which can be a pretty boring affair um, if you're not into uh, studying cars and taking photos of cars, but you want to go out on the weekend and have uh, a fun a fun weekend and, and go to an event that's got some music and some good food and some good beverages. So uh, we, we put on sort of more of an art show, um, but the art that we're featuring um, are vintage race cars from Porsche's uh, past and, and classics that, are on the road, both modified and completely preserved original. But Luftgekult translates um, as a German word that means air-cooled. And, you know, Porsches, most Porsches, at least all 911s up till 1998, never had a radiator. They were oil and air-cooled. And, and that's where we got the name. And it's really just um, walking through a really cool space that has some architecture, like a gastropub or um, even a lumberyard, and then placing you know, 300 of, of the most curated and insane uh, Porsches that you could come up with um, that are, are all privately owned and people who want to get together and, 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 and throw a party and, and let their car be um, the backdrop for, for photography. Um, in this day and age, as you know, it's kids with cameras, right? Everybody walks around with an iPhone and, and wants to post to their Instagram. And so it's really a show that's made for the Instagram age, but we find that all generations find something to enjoy in these events or at least we try to make sure they do and then um they want t-shirts and they want hats and so uh, a big part of um our revenue is is keeping the online shop stocked and uh yeah just do a lot of a lot of work in the textiles of sourcing the cotton and working with the printers and really trying to take our our wearables and and our merchandise into a, a genre of of something that's stylistic that you could you could wear out to a nice restaurant, but still has a little bit of, uh, of car flair to it instead of just uh, the loud, shiny race car track uh, T-shirts. We try to make it a piece of art, um, but with some automotive heritage in it. That's awesome. And, and speaking of all these vintage cars, you've got quite a car collection as well. Is it true that you've got a few of your cars from when you first started driving? Uh, yeah, I, I never thought I would really get into owning cars uh, you know racing drivers get paid to, to drive other people's cars and, and we're pretty spoiled so why would we want to take our hard-earned cash and and put it back into to owning our own cars but uh i'm one of those uh guys that is not that intelligent and and went ahead and, and got the bug and and started buying a few uh cars that that meant something to me for my career um but also owning a few of the the vintage 911s to drive on the street i, I find those cars are just completely captivating uh, a lot of them don't have power steering um you know they they they're lightweight they're easy to work on uh and they're quick they're really quick especially in the canyons here in southern california uh, you don't need to you know be flying down the freeways to, to have some fun like modern car um, a lot of it is just getting into the tight twisty technicals and you'd be amazed you know a 911 that's 30 40 years old will easily hold its own uh, against the modern kind of supercars of today, uh, at least in the tight, twisty technical uh, kind of canyons that we have here uh, with the, the hills in, in California. So, yeah, fun. Uh, I've been tweaking on a 1957 356 today. 
Uh, it's a it's a car that's pretty original. Uh, the interior is a little bit ratty, um, and and tells the story of uh, of the car and where it's been, and you know, kind of trace back its ownership and try not to be too nerdy about it, but to really understand, um, you know, the ownership history and and where this car's been, and and a lot of it for me is utilizing mechanics, crew chiefs, engineers, people that I know from the motorsport world that run a, a business or an organization that's around some aspect of these vintage Porsches. So yeah, a lot of fun um, to kind of, you know, fix up and, and flip or, or keep these cars and, and just tend to them and exercise them and, and, and make small little changes. But most of the cars that I have, they look pretty period, pretty original. Um, and then I just tweak on, you know, differentials and dampers and seating position and just things that really make the driving experience a little bit better, uh, but try to keep the, the look and feel pretty, pretty original. So how many cars are we talking in the collection at the moment? Uh, it ebbs and flows. Um, the, the goal is, is really to focus on three cars uh, with three completely different experiences and disciplines. Um, right now the collection's up at about six, but that's more than um, you know I really want to keep just because they all need to be driven. They all need to have a, a little bit of this or a little bit of that. And so, it's kind of like being a, a crazy, um, you know, dog owner or cat owner. <laughs> There's only so many dogs or cats you can you can give attention to, and the rest of them just kind of stare at you and wonder where you've been. So, um, I think three is my goal. Um, sometimes I I end up with these cars. Um, I get a phone call and somebody says, "Hey, I've got this car. It's been in my family for a long time. Um, it's really mint, um, and I don't want to put it out on on the web." And so I'll grab it, and it's not a business it's just a hobby, but I'll grab that car and, and, uh, you know, then another friend will call and say, Hey, I'm, I'm looking to get out of this crypto or, or this, this, uh, stock portfolio. And I've been wanting to have a 911 my whole life. And so I kind of keep a few cars, um, you know, in, in my garage that are ready to go. And, and so I try to land those cars with good, good owners, usually their friends. And, and then, you know, just hear their stories of, ripping that car, you know, across the country or, or taking it out on the racetrack. And it's a lot of fun. Oh, that's awesome. It sounds like there's a reality TV series somewhere in that with the, you know, doing up these iconic cars and selling them. It's just, yeah, awesome stuff. And I have to ask you all these years in motorsport, what's the favorite car that you've driven over all these years? Do you have one that stands out above all else? Oh, um, a 962 is, to me, the, the kind of pinnacle of technology and old school and, and right where the driver kind of got the most from the car. Um, you had big downforce, turbos, um, proper sized tires, um, and, 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 and real horsepower, but still an H pattern, you know, still no driver aids, no traction control, no ABS. I mean, that's what I really love is that mix of performance, but lots of inputs needed still from the driver and, and lots of difference that the driver can make in, in bringing the lap time out of a car. So that's my pick for today. Um, as far as a street car, I say any car where the steering wheel is bigger than the tire and the rim that you're driving on, that's fun on the street. So I like old cars from the 50s and 60s where they've got some grunt and, and no grip and, and you're just scared to even go the speed limit uh, it just it puts a smile on your face 
Oh, fantastic. And I have to ask, you know, you've got such a busy schedule still, you know, now that you've stepped down from the driving commitments. Do you get to watch many of the major championships, your Formula One, your IndyCar, and even the supercars? Do you get to watch any of that in your time off? I don't watch a ton of TV. Um, I, I do uh, slip in uh, here and there. Uh, the IndyCar stuff on the road courses has been really good to watch over the years. Um, certainly F1 has captivated me uh, this last couple of seasons, especially with with Mercedes and Lewis um, having more competition. And I mean, everybody was talking about this year and, and I had been watching um, all the races, uh, you know, with my son who loves watching it. And I was, I, I hadn't had a heart rate that high watching a race in a very long time um, from, from when they went back to green there on that final run um, in Abu Dhabi and I was cheering for Lewis. Um, but I was more just watching it as a fan and, and, and so happy that you had two teams, uh, just knock down, drag out brawl at the end of a championship of a formula one world championship. And we've all remembered the years with Bill Newb and Schumacher or Hill and Schumacher. And I was sure they were going to crash after, after, um, Saudi Arabia, I was sure the last, race was going to be a, a crash and I'm glad it wasn't and you can totally debate the rules and and what happened um and in, in those final moments of the race but I think when this all all the drama dies down and we look back four or five years from now we'll still be talking about that race and just the the talent and the speed um of those two drivers of Max and Lewis and and also the level uh that both of those teams brought all season long so I thought it was great. Um, I understand we're in the Netflix era of Formula One and, and Liberty Media, and I think that it brought more viewers to the, the sport. But now I would personally hope that it kind of doesn't go any further into the entertainment antics and stays as a pure form of FIA uh, motorsport. So, yeah, we'll see. But um, pretty pretty uh captivating to watch yeah and, and just quickly on that what do you think the future of motorsport holds more broadly because you know you're involved with porsche and they're investing into the future what do you think motorsport's going to look like in a few years time i think the lmdh lm hypercar side of of endurance sports car racing uh is going to bring new people to the sport maybe some of these listeners who don't follow sports car racing that closely, I promise you 2023 will have you checking it out. And, and the reason is because the competition is going to be tight. Uh, the rules uh, keep the cost down compared to the last 10 years. And so I think you'll have a lot more manufacturer involvement. I think you'll have a lot more known names um, from all disciplines of, of racing. And I hope some Aussies will get the call up um, from the national scene as well to come over and, and race these cars. And, you know, they're combustion electric hybrid prototypes, but um, they're all in a pretty tight window of, of technical um, restrictions. And, and we know from V8 that when you make the racing close and affordable, uh, you get amazing sports. So I'm, I'm excited. Well, yeah, and you've had such a long, illustrious career in motorsport. I have to ask you this one. 
you know, obviously there's a lot of variables at play when it comes to, you know, making a career in motorsport. And even if you have the talent, it's not always guaranteed that you'll end up, you know, at the very top. Like Oscar Piastri, another Australian, is a prime example of that after winning Formula 2. Still not in F1 next season, unfortunately. But I have to ask you, though, after all your years in motorsport, what words of advice would you give a driver like his, like yourself back in the day working your way up? What would you say to the young carters out there that might be listening to this, wanting to establish a career in motorsport? Yeah, make sure uh, you're winning in any formula that you're in, uh, which means you got to find your way to the, the, the good equipment and you got to be experienced and, and know uh, the formula that you're in. Uh, I think wins speak uh, loudest for people who are making decisions at a higher level. Uh, so never think that taking a 10th place car to P8 is going to be um, catching the headlines. I think the advice I got is something I tried to follow was um, before you move up, make sure you're winning at, at that level. Uh, and the other part of it is something you touched on, which is um, results aren't enough. And and in that, you have to have your whole game um, and, and your goals completely clear in your mind so that every day you're working towards those goals and every decision that you have to make, it's an easier path when you know what your, your one year, your three year, your five year goals are. Um, and surround yourself with, uh, people who are, are successful and accomplished, um, in the discipline that you're heading toward and ask them for their advice. It's amazing, um, how many people who are, are champions and legends are happy to give their advice for free. And uh, that means you have to go out there and pick up the phone and, and meet these people and make sure that they know who you are and, and, and know what your name is. And sometimes they might not have time for a personal phone call, but um, there's ways to make them aware of who you are. And sometimes the most persistent one wins and, and you can certainly overcook it, but um, you got to be hungry because waiting at home for the phone to ring uh, isn't the way forward, in my opinion. Patrick Long, just before we finish up the final one, of all the years in motorsport, is there one particular moment, one highlight that stands out for you for your entire career in motorsport? Uh, uh, I, I think it's more of a general answer. Any day where you come from behind um, and, and, and push through the field, uh, those, are, those are the best days at, at the racetrack, in my opinion, um, where the odds are against you and... and you've got a piece under you and, and you're, you're just completely focused. It feels effortless and, and you're able to hustle um, back maybe from some adversity or, or a tough starting spot. Those are always the most rewarding days um, because you just, you just have to charge. Um, and, and there's been plenty of those days um, for, for lots of drivers. And, and those are the ones that, that stand out for me. Fantastic stuff. Well, Patrick Long, it's been such a pleasure to have you join us on the podium. It's been an awesome career that you've had in motorsports so far. Sure, it's going to continue with your new roles there with Porsche. All the very best, and thanks again for joining us on the podium. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, been been an interesting one, and uh, lots of memories refreshed, so appreciate it, and I'll be listening to your show to, to learn about some of these other guests you have on.